All right, Aaron's going to read our passage for us tonight. You have heard it that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer, but if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. All right. Thanks, Aaron. So, uh, again, we have... As we've had for a few weeks now, we have two cases this in this full passage. We're going to break this up over the next two or three weeks a little bit. But in this full passage, you have two cases of Jesus saying, you've heard that it was said, and then quote, either directly quoting some Old Testament law or quoting um, sort of a summary or the kind of the spirit of an Old Testament law, religious law that they would have known. Uh, in their case, religious and legal laws overlapped, and so, so sometimes they were both. But twice, he says, you've heard that it was said and, and refers to some old law uh, that's still in effect. We say old law because we have named the Old Testament old and the New Testament new. They did not have that terminology or that same sense of things. But he quotes that and says, but I say to you... Um, and then gives them a new instruction or a different uh, variation on the old instruction. And this, again, it's important because the word but is there in English, we tend to interpret that as a negation of what comes before it. But he says all of this, again, in the context of his insistence that he's not here to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law and the prophets, which he has said several verses back in verse 17. So, uh, at first glance, and this has been the case again at multiple points, at first glance, it can feel like as he fulfills the law and the prophets and sort of opens up, this is what I mean when I say I fulfill the law and the prophets, this is what that means for you. This is what the new law is for you in a sense. It can feel like he's actually making the law more difficult, more rigorous. Coming back to the beginning of this passage uh, today, it can feel like um, he's saying, he articulates, he starts tonight, in our case, uh, with an articulation of this very familiar concept to them and to us in a certain sense, but it, it would have been more an overt law of the day to them than it is. It is still the law of the day for us, uh, just not quite as overt, maybe. But he articulates this very familiar concept, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, meaning if someone takes your eye, you take their eye. If someone takes your tooth, they take, you take 
um, their tooth, in which case some of us owe our siblings teeth, right, from our childhood. Um, But he articulates what's really familiar to them. And then he offers a new way of living in to God's purposes. And it may feel like this is, for me, the hearer of what he's saying, when he's saying, this is how you should live, instead of living under the condition that if someone takes something from you, you're, you have the right to take an equal thing from them, this is how I expect you to live. And he makes these four statements in this first part of the passage tonight. He says, don't resist an evildoer. If anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to them the left also. He then says, if anyone wants to sue you, and take your coat, give your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. And then the last statement, which we lost some spacing here, which is going to be fun because these are on the screen almost the whole sermon. Uh, Give to everyone who begs for you and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. Okay, And from here, going into the rest of the passage, which we'll talk about in the next couple of weeks, he opens up a wider understanding of what he wants happening inside of us. These are sort of uh, articulations of this is how you should behave in response if these behaviors come into your space. Uh, This is how you should behave. But he opens up a wider understanding of what he wants happening inside of us in the verses to come as we do these things. And I think... Um, I, I, was, I almost went into the second part of this passage first and then came back uh, to the first part um, because I think that internal shift is essential for us to really, in any sort of lasting way, do what he says here. So keep that in mind. We're going to go ahead and talk in the order that he gave us these instructions, but I think he gets into the internal part of this later on, and I think that is crucial to us living in the way that that he tells us to live here in a world full of people who are willing to strike us or sue us, certainly in our culture, or force us to do for them in some way, and uh, who will beg and borrow from us in different ways. If we're going to respond this way, something has to change in us, not just in our in the rules around us. So I want to give all four of these their due attention, because if you haven't picked up on it with his words prior to this about anger and lust, commitment and marriage, the way that our lives match our words, it becomes unavoidable here in this passage that Jesus is absolutely articulating an alternative vision for life in the world. This is not, there's no way, if you take this seriously, to just integrate it into, oh yeah, this kind of fits with how the world flows. This is in opposition to the way that the world flows. In its immediate context, so to the Jewish people he was talking to at that point, it's both an alternative to the surrounding, the non-Jewish culture, in their case, primarily a Roman culture, a Roman legal culture, a Roman uh, sort of cultural setting. And it's also a reimagining for them of their religious understanding of what life was about, what it meant to live as God's people. So that's, that's what it did then. And I don't think it's any less that for us now. I think it's absolutely both of those things for us now. I think these four statements are not the way the world around us uh, works. But if, and when I say the world around us, I say that in our sort of classic Christian way of referring to the world that does not follow Jesus. So this is not how that part of the world generally works. But if we're honest, If we take them seriously, it's also going to require us to change what even much of our Christianity has tolerated 
or even embraced in these specific situations that he talks about. Dealing with people who do us harm or people who want to sue us or take advantage of us financially or in some powerful way. People who look to take advantage of us by having us do their work for them. And people who ask for us to give them something for nothing or to give them some kind of loan. Uh, This is going to change the way, if we take it seriously, that a lot of our just sort of natural Christian culture has functioned in these categories. So there's context to what he says in each one of these, and we're going to look at that, the sort of specific context and the deeper meaning that may or may not be as obvious in each of these statements. But let me say really clear before we get into the details of this passage and the, the, the second part of it that we'll look at the next two or three weeks. I think one of the great errors of Christianity in our time and space is minimizing and in some cases utterly ignoring the words of Jesus in these verses. I think much of the Christianity that many of us have lived in and have inherited uh, has just done away with this or jumped through it or over it or walked around it in some significant way. Like most of us, I think my personal understanding of life with Jesus is a constant, it's constantly developing and changing. I'm old enough now to look back over my life and see these, see somewhat distinct seasons of my faith, of what I believed, of how I practiced. Um, and this kind of understanding of where you can kind of look back over your life and see it in seasons, it's one of those things that you just can't r- rush or reproduce anyway, except just getting older and having that much perspective um, and being able to see things change dramatically over time and see sort of the distinct seasons of this. We went to the movies uh, as a family this past week, and before the movie, we saw a trailer for um, a diary of a new diary of a wimpy kid movies. I haven't seen any of these movies, but it's a new diary of a wimpy kid movie. Um, and these are the parents of the teenagers in that movie, which was startling to me <clears throat> that these are the parents of the teenagers because in, in my mind, these two people... Um, are still these two people. Um, On the left is Cher from Clueless. You might also notice uh, Turk from Scrubs in the background there. Um, I I wasn't a big Clueless guy, but I absolutely knew who Alicia Silverstone was at that time in my life. Um, And on the right is Guy Patterson or Skitch or Young Squire from That Thing You Do, which is one of the most underrated movies uh, in history. But this is who these people are in my mind. They are not parents of teenagers uh, in my mind. But I'm old enough in this case and in lots of cases like this to suddenly realize, oh, things have not just changed a little bit, but things have changed by an order of generations in my lifetime. And, and that's true for me as it relates to my faith. I can look back and see these sort of younger versions of my faith uh, that have changed over time. That's not saying that my faith is fully developed and fully grown. It's just different. So there are lots of things I'm able to look back over time and see these real seasons, these, these major changes. And, and 
For me, one of those is this. I can identify a time in my life when I insisted that the Bible was to be taken seriously and the Bible was to be taken literally even. Uh, I was raised in a tradition that uh, was, was big on the literal reading of the Bible. Um, and without really even realizing the depth of the inconsistency, I treated a lot of the words of Jesus differently than that uh, statement about my faith, that statement about the scriptures would call for. I said the Bible was to be taken seriously and literally, and then uh, I grew up in a, in a space where I was allowed to or chose to, I don't blame anyone else, but interpret the words of Jesus in such a way that I'm not sure I took them that seriously, and I definitely didn't take them literally. Um, not because I understood the context and so could say, well, he was using hyperbole here, uh, but just because what he says didn't make sense to my human understanding, so he couldn't mean what he says, um, or because it was too hard. I would have never had admitted that, but these four statements uh, are very tough for us, and in, our, in light of our human understanding, they're the kind of thing that we come upon, and we just feel like that's too hard if he really means what he says here. Uh, and I'm still growing and struggling with his words and how to understand them. I had a couple of good conversations just this last week about the passages that we looked at la last Sunday and what to do with some of it. Clearly, I didn't deal with all of that uh, in depth. And so I had a couple of good conversations about what does he mean here? And my answer to one of those questions was, I really don't know. <laughs> it's a confusing way of wording this, and it's hard to make sense of it. But I'm in a season where, at, at the very least, I realize I can't do that. I can't claim to take the Scripture seriously and not take the words of Jesus seriously. I have to take what he says and really wrestle with it. Uh, some of that is because um, of, I hope, some maturity in my faith. Some of it, if I'm just honest, is because we're living in a world that so clearly does not do these things that Jesus says right now um, and is so obviously broken and bleeding in futility that uh, I come back to this and go, wait a second, <laughs> maybe he meant this uh, was the way that we're supposed to live. So, of course, context matters, and it's okay to acknowledge when, that there are moments when Jesus speaks in metaphor and uses hyperbole for effect. He does. But believing... Uh, the phrase, pluck your eye out, is hyperbole, is not the same thing as just assuming that he doesn't mean it when he says, don't resist an evildoer or don't respond to violence with violence. You can't just make that leap. So I want to take these words seriously as we walk through them. I do think it's important, though I'm just going to deal with the first part of the passage tonight. I want to look quickly at the, this last verse um, because there's a therefore in that sentence, which means that the words leading up to this build into this sort of punctuation of these thoughts. He says, therefore, in light of everything I just said, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So what I think he's saying, well, I'll deal with the word perfect a little bit more in the next couple of weeks, but what I think he's essentially saying here is, you know that the law shaped your behavior through rules about what was and wasn't allowed. You know that. That's how you've always lived. But listen now as I reveal to you the deeper meaning of the law and the prophets, as I show you what it looks like 
when the way and the will of God fully come to life in human beings, not just by rule, but by spirit. These specific examples of what it means to be truly transformed by God that he's given us the last few weeks and then these coming few weeks, they're supposed to be taken seriously, but they're not rules in the same way that the law before were rules. They're revelations of the bigger picture. It's a com- they're a compelling call to come and to lose your life and receive the life of God in its place. And I think that last phrasing is key to understanding and embracing the difficult words of Jesus always, but certainly in this space. When we try to make Jesus reasonable, we ignore that following him at all requires that you come and die. This is what we often do. We run into his words and we say, this is not practical. This is too hard. This is asking us to do things that don't make sense in our human understanding. So let's Let's come up with some other interpretation that makes more sense. And I think almost always when we do that, we're ignoring the fact that at the outset, Jesus says, if anyone wants to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life, which he talks about in some sense in these passages, will lose it. And those who will lose my life for my sake, lose their life for my sake, will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? I think if we're going to understand what he has to say here, we have to give acknowledgement to the fact that this is, this is the call to give away your life. And so the part of you that resists the harder teachings of Jesus, you have to at least ask, is this an effort to cling to my life and resist his life replacing mine. We'll talk about that more too next week. So I don't want to get too far off script here. Um, so let's get back into these four statements. As we seek, my, my point there is that as we seek to understand his meaning, I think in these four statements and in the ones we've looked at in, in recent weeks, the big picture of, uh, and understand kind of the big picture of all that, that he's giving us, remember that it's all building toward that therefore. Therefore, be perfect. Um, as I am perfect. And, and I think just boiling it down, uh, it's okay to understand that as since the way of the world and the way of rules-based religion are not giving you the rich, satisfying life you were made for, be who God made you to be. I think that's the essence of therefore, in light of all these things, be like God be who he made you to be, be what it looks like when he comes to life in your life, in your place. And that includes these four statements, okay? First one, do not resist an evildoer, but if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. Um, I may devote uh, some more attention, specific attention next week to this conversation about the role of violence and force and, and what we do all, all, with all of that. Uh, So I'm going through all four of these tonight, so I'm not going to give these. Some of you are really kind of uh, jazzed up about this conversation about violence. I'm absolutely not going to give it an adequate covering tonight. But I do want to deal with what he says here. Um, In addition to fitting into the bigger picture Jesus is painting, this statement for his immediate followers, again, and for us, I think, 
reflects a new understanding of justice that Jesus initiates. The old understanding of justice, which is evident throughout the Old Testament law, it's easily reflected in the phrase that he quotes here, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That's sort of the spirit of justice under the law. The old system, that system, was sin management. It was meant to keep retribution and revenge when something was bad was done to somebody from getting so out of control that all hell would break loose and everybody would just, literally, all hell would break loose, right? We would just have this endless cycle of retribution and revenge. Certainly that's happening in certain parts of the world, but God's trying to set his people apart and keep that from happening within his people. So the law is intended to keep that under control, to management in some way. So it put a sort of equitable limit on retribution. There's just no way around. That's what the law did in this sense. It essentially said, only take as retribution what was taken from you. So once uh, a punitive eye is taken in response to the initial eye being taken, that's it. It's settled. And that was comparatively better to these escalating feuds without rules or limits where one evil act was answered by that evil act times two and then times four, and it got completely out of control. But Jesus is here to initiate the healing of the world. (laughs) So that system no longer makes sense under the reign and rule of Jesus. And part of what is important to understand, it's not explicit in what he says here, and in the historical timeline, it certainly hasn't happened yet, but in the greater context of the life and teaching of Jesus, it's important to remember that he is going to absorb the full weight of sin. He's going to carry justice on his back. All penalty for sin is taken up in his crucifixion, in his death. So it's time for us to leave the old ways of retribution behind. Don't resist an evildoer. In fact, if someone hits you on the right cheek, turn and let him hit the left as well. So in this particular time and space where Jesus is talking, um, if you had a face-to-face dispute with someone, if someone struck you on the right cheek, it was likely because they were backhanding you with their right hand, okay? You got to think about uh, the physics of this just a little bit. Most people are right-handed, And no offense to left-handers, but I think Jesus is speaking in majority summary terms here. Um, Most people are right-handed. So if I punch you, if you're facing me and I punch you with my right fist, I'm not hitting the right side of your face. I'm hitting the left side of your face. And if I'm right-handed, I'm probably not going to hit you, at least initially, until I'm desperate, especially in my case, where I am tragically right-handed and this appendage is almost useless to me. I'm not going to hit you with my left hand at the beginning of a fight. So if I'm hitting you with my right hand, I'm hitting you the left, the left side of your face. So if I'm hitting the right side of your face with my right hand, I'm backhanding you. That's not just a sort of logical that was common in that culture. Um, a backhand to the face was not just about, in fact, it wasn't often to initiate a fight And it wasn't just about the physical violence or the force. It was about power. It was a statement. A backhand was an insult. It was saying, you're beneath me. 
Uh, you're not an equal to me. I don't need to punch you. I'm just, and we have some sense of that, right? If someone slaps you, it's different than someone hitting you in some weird way. We see that as a different kind of insult. And that was true in that culture as well. It's a statement that you're less than me. And here's how I'm going to communicate that in this moment. So if I backhand you and not only injure you, but insult you, how should you respond to that? And Jesus is saying here, if you hit back in that case, number one, you're adding a little more violence and insult to the world when even if we struggle to know what to do with Jesus' words about physical power and violence, we all probably agree that adding more injury and insult to the world is the opposite of what God is doing in Jesus. It's not what he's here to do. He's bringing an end to violence and insult. He's bringing peace and life into the world. So we say we're with him in that, but do we mean it? And not just in theory, but in these real moments of our lives. Jesus, I think, is saying here, join me in what I'm doing. Don't be a part of what I'm here to bring an end to. It may seem small, but everything big starts small. And I'm here to bring an end to all of that. So that's part of what he says. Don't add more violence and physical force uh, and, and exercise of artificial power into the world. But his instruction, this, if you understand it in the context of this backhand insult, it also enables us to make a subversive and powerful statement beyond what we maybe often see or assume in these words. When you're backhanded on the right side of your face, he says, offer them the left side of your face at which point they have to punch you to hit that side of your face. And that's a statement that I'm not going to answer violence with violence. I'm going to answer violence with peace. But it's also a statement that I'm going to remind you that I'm made in the image of God just like you. So if you're going to hit me, hit me like a man. It's, forgive me, but I think that's the essence of hit me like a human being. Hit me like I'm your equal, not like I'm inferior to you. Be who God made you to be and see me as who God made me to be. I'm not a child or a slave or an object like you suggest when you hit me with the back of your hand. I'm your equal, so if you're going to hit me, hit me here on the left side of the face. There's a statement when you offer that side of your face. Second statement, if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, Give your cloak as well. If someone is coming after you mercilessly, which is what's happening, if someone is coming and suing you for your clothing, <laughs> right? If we're at that point in a lawsuit that they're seeking your clothing, they're trying to take everything from you. Um, if someone's coming after you mercil mercilessly to the point that they'll take everything you have, including the coat that you're wearing, you don't point to God's truth or advance his kingdom by playing that game of tug of war, Jesus says. Instead, give them your coat, which they're suing you for, and then offer him your shirt as well. And once you're standing there naked, handing him everything that you're wearing, the evil and futility of what that person is doing is exposed. The absurdity becomes obvious. It's, a, it's another sort of statement. This is Consistent, I think, with what Jesus says regularly about the rich and powerful of the world taking from or simply ignoring the plight of the poor and the powerless. He's reminding us there's actually no shame in being poor or being powerless in the world. In fact, 
He says, he has said already, blessed are the poor, the mourners, the meek, the desperate to see the world made right, the merciful, the pure, the peacemakers, and the persecuted. There's no shame in that. There's blessing in that. But the shame of those who use money and power to protect their own money and power will be exposed when the powerless don't cling to the way of the world for protection and bear witness to the sufficiency of Jesus, even when they surrender the shirt off their backs. This, again, is a call to remember that the gift of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus, is enough. Next statement, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. This is about Roman law. Roman soldiers had the right. Roman, they were living in Roman-occupied territory, and Roman soldiers had the right to ask anyone they came upon who was part of the, the Roman Empire uh, to carry their equipment for one mile. It was a strict law. You couldn't ask them to, to take it two miles or even a mile and a half. You could ask them to take it one mile. They had to respond and do that, and then that would be the end of it. And this scene, it's important uh, when you start thinking about that sort of military uh, comparison. This is not, if you're, if you're out in, walking around the United States of America and you come upon a veteran and the reverence with which we hold veterans, you have an opportunity to help out that veteran. And you think, God bless America, let me help this soldier for a mile. This is not that scene. This is Russia invades the U.S. and is occupying our space and Russian soldier comes by, and you have to carry his gear, the occupier's gear, your enemy's gear. That is what's happening in this particular um, situation. You have to do it, but you sure don't like doing it. But Jesus says, when one of them asks you to carry their stuff a mile, carry it too. Surprise the soldier. Maybe break the rhythm of what's normal. Uh, maybe make him worry as you carry it the second mile, that he's going to get caught with a citizen carrying his gear a second mile and get in trouble. These kinds of interruptions are often what get our attention and make us question, what, does any of this make sense? <laughs> Is this the way that things are supposed to be? Um, but either way, he's saying, be like your father, be perfect, like your father is perfect. Reflect your father in this moment. Give generously to the one who doesn't deserve it. And in doing so, make the declaration that there's another way to live that isn't like this. And in fact, it's not only not like this. It's not only where we force other people to do our work for them, but it's not bothered. This new way that has come into me that I am helping bring into the world, it's not bothered or threatened even by occupying military, carrying weapons. Sure, I'll carry your stuff a, a second mile. I'm unfazed by your occupation, by your power, by your presence, because the way is coming true here and now, and it's the real way, and it's taken over my life, and it's coming into the world. Last statement here, you have to trust me. It says, give to everyone who begs from you, and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. This is straightforward and simple, and we have Americanized the heck out of this one. Um, but gosh, what if Jesus just means what he says? <laughs> um, what if even here he's saying, show people what I'm like by giving generously and showing grace freely without strings attached? 
Show that whatever you have, the money that you're being asked for, that in that moment, this very clear dividing line rises up in your, in your head that this is my money and not this person who's asking to borrow or just have my money. This is my money and not theirs. Demonstrate that whatever money you happen to have in your possession at that moment comes from a God who doesn't refuse to give to you. And affirm that you don't need that money to be okay. And that you don't rely on it instead of coming up with reasons to keep it in your pocket. It's unavoidable here that it really doesn't matter what translation you go to. There's some version of give to everyone. Do not refuse anyone. That's tough. (laughs) It's hard for us to reconcile that. And I think there is still space for a conversation. Um, it, honestly, I think the only space here for any kind of asterisk, if, we, if we're going to zoom out and look at, okay, let's look at the full teachings of Jesus and the full teachings of the Scripture. Um, I don't think there's a whole lot, I still don't think there's a whole lot of space for most of the rational, rationalization we do in these moments. If there's any space for an asterisk, it is... Uh, for enabling people you know are going to hurt themselves. There's a really great book called When Helping Hurts um, that's about sort of the, the Western missionary culture where we've gone in and done all this helping without understanding the culture and destroyed people and destroyed culture. So if you want to read about that asterisk, that's a good place to start. Um, but that aside, I think uh, we, th- that notion that this person's going to do something bad with what I give them or irresponsible with what I give them has become a crutch and an excuse for defaulting to just hanging on to most of our money um, and avoiding helping people who ask if we have even the slightest concern about how they'll use it. And I don't think that was the intent of Jesus here. And if we can just be honest, a lot of our concerns are often... uh, we don't know that person. <laughs> and instead of just defaulting to Jesus says, so give to them, we default to, I don't know them. And I'm suspicious, sometimes for reasons that we need to deal with in our own hearts. Um, and so that becomes a justification for how we respond. And I just think it's really tough to square with what Jesus says here unless we just write off what he says and decide that he doesn't really mean what he says which I want us to be very cautious about doing. And again, the point is this. Your handling of money around people who have less and people who have needs should both reflect who God is, the God who gave you money in the first place, and bring the kingdom into this world here and now. What will the kingdom do with rich and poor? And a lot of us, most of us, maybe none of us think of ourselves as rich, but zoom any moment like this down to just that moment. And there is a rich person and there's a poor person potentially in a scenario. What will the kingdom do with that? Well, you're here to do that now. You're here to embody and embrace the kingdom. So When Jesus tells us to turn the other cheek instead of defending ourselves, when he tells us not to take up financial or legal fights on the world's terms in defending ourselves, when he tells us to go that second mile, when he tells us to give what we have freely without imposing our power on the person that we're giving or lending to. Uh, By the way, in Romans 12, Paul calls all of this 
overcoming evil with good instead of allowing evil to overcome, instead of allowing yourself to be overcome by evil. And I think that's a really helpful thing to remember in all of this. All of our deliberations about whether we can embody what he says here, whether we can obey it and, and respond in these, this way, Paul says that is ultimately a battle between this. Will you overcome evil with good, the evil that comes into your space, or will that evil overcome you? And that's an, I think it's a helpful way to remember that. But when Jesus calls us to these specific things, it's not, and this is the last thing really I want to say, it's not just some sort of hippie way of being nice that sounds good but has no power. And I think that's what some of us struggle with. He's asking us to affirm his justice and restoration instead of embracing, embracing and affirming in the world human justice and retribution. So when I offer my left cheek, when I refuse to answer violence and degradation with more of the same, there is power in that. It is not mere weakness. It is my weakness so that his power can be evident. I'm affirming the image of God even in an enemy, reminding my enemy of the image of God in me, and I'm ultimately insisting that Jesus has absorbed the penalty for sin. that He's carried on his back the weight of all justice. We bear witness to the goodness of the way of Jesus and to the sufficiency of his sacrifice and justice instead of fighting to achieve a lesser justice for ourselves, which is normally what we do instead in these situations. All of this, and, and as we move into these next couple of weeks, uh, it will continue to build toward this. It all points us toward something far bigger than self-protection or even of God's particular protection of, of me, of us. It points to the work of God to rescue and to redeem all of his creation, which we're all caught up in, and it points to our participation. Our participation in that means we walk the way of Jesus to continue to join his work in the world. There's cost to us in that. But the cost doesn't matter when it makes us more like Jesus, when it means, and this again is what I want us to always come back to, when it means that we're giving away our lives and we're taking in return, we're sharing in return his life. We're receiving his life, our way our life, our protection. We die to that. But what we get in return is not what we often feel we get, which is nothing, which is just, well, I'm going to get beat up or I'm going to lose all my money or ultimately I'm going to die. What we get in return is the life of, of God, is his way, his life come into us as a replacement for our way, for our life. Let's pray. Father, um, Mostly I just ask that we would wrestle with your words, that we would hear the words of Jesus, that we t would take them seriously, and whatever conclusions we come to, and we're all going to come to some different conclusions about certain corners of this, that we believe that you have something better for us than what our nature tells us we should do in these real moments of our lives, when we're threatened, when someone or something is going to cost us something. Will you teach us to trust you that you have something better? That if we uh, 
uh, risk ourselves for your sake, that we're safe in every way that matters. And would you continue to make us people who trust your spirit to be alive in us and to trust Jesus and his reign in the world to be better than what we can even imagine. We pray all of that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, uh, I have three questions. And if you have an announcement, you can go ahead and head on up while I read the questions. And as always, we'll get these sent out this week. How do I handle the difficult statements and questions of Jesus? Do I deal with them head on? Do I rationalize them away? Do I avoid them? Meditate on these four statements Jesus makes in Matthew 5, 38 through 42, and think about or discuss in your com groups or with other folks how they challenge our conventional wisdom and way of living. And then third, Jesus insisted that I will find real life, the rich eternal life that only God can give when I relinquish my rights to my own life. If I take him at his word, how does that change my understanding of and response to his words in this passage?